people. And so far, prosecutors have filed charges against 15 people in federal court. They say there will be more, and they're revealing details about several of these charges. Of course, most notoriously, they've arrested and charged Richard Barnett. He is in custody in Arkansas, and he was the one, Brooke, you mentioned. He was photographed with his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk. You know, he bragged to a local TV station in Arkansas that he stole an envelope from her desk, but he is now under arrest, taken into custody in Little Rock, Arkansas, and he is facing federal charges. And that's in addition to Derek Evans, that delegate for the West Virginia legislature. He reported himself storming the Capitol. He's now facing federal charges. And then prosecutors are also releasing more details, Brooke, about how this riot could have been much worse. They've arrested a man whose truck was found near the Capitol, and inside, they had previously told us they had found 11 Molotov cocktails that were ready to go, but now they're telling us they also found two handguns, an M4 assault rifle, gasoline, and also materials for homemade napalm that's used to make bombs and flamethrowers. So, Brooke, today we're getting the information about the people charged. We expect more people to be charged, both in federal court, and we're seeing people in the local D.C. courts as well, Brooke. Listen, if you deny COVID, you don't believe in masks, you don't wear masks, you go mob, raid, incite violence on the on the Capitol, you're going to get your picture taken, and they're going to come and find you. Jessica Snyder, That's thank true. you so much. Uh, with me now, CNN legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Elliot Williams, and CNN counterterrorism analyst and former CIA counterterrorism official Philip Mudd. Gentlemen, great to have you on. Uh, Elliot, just flat out, could, could the president of the United States actually face any charges here? He could. At a minimum, you could have an investigation of the president for what would be inciting a riot. Literally, there's a federal riot act, for lack of a better term, that lays out you know when you have an organization, when you have a group of individuals uh, engaging in acts of violence. The problem is just going to be tricky to convict him of it. Like I said, you could investigate him for it, but you're going to have to prove that the specific acts of violence were at the behest of the person who who urged them. Now. The president can certainly have the defense that, well, I was urging people to protest uh, uh, under the, as, as is their right under the First Amendment, but, but those guys who were engaged in violence, uh, you know, that, that wasn't me. It's just going to be harder to prove, but you could certainly charge it and you could certainly investigate it. And then, Phil, all these people, as I mentioned, you know, not wearing masks, so they're easily caught on video. They're being identified. You heard Jessica say, say the one guy's, like, bragging back home on his local news about how he stole whatever from Nancy Pelosi. I mean, not 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 exactly a brilliant move, uh, but great for, for law enforcement. You know, they're now going home, various corners of the country. They're, they're trying to hide some of them, scrubbing their social media. How does law enforcement track them all down? Boy, there's a lot of work going into this. Look at, the, look at what's... Uh, available to law enforcement now. It's not only what they put up on social media and whether you can recover that later, you can. It's obviously obviously what's on the video feeds going on in the, in, in the Congress. Remember, just that day, when the, the day of the riot, there were FBI officials who went into that building. I presume that was for evidence collection, not only photographing the damage, but making sure that they recovered the video from that facility. And then the great revolution in the past few years, how many people took cell phone video, whether they were in the facility, you're not. So I think there's going to be a ton of, not only a ton of evidence, but 50 people sounds like a few. A lot more uh, prosecutions in, in the coming days. By the way, just one quick uh, moment here on what the president-elect said, but we just heard him on CNN a few minutes ago. I got to tell you, I was really surprised about what he said about the inauguration and encouraging Donald Trump, the president, not to attend for one simple reason. You realize the president has said 
that he, ex he wants to support a smooth transition. He has not said that he accepts the legitimacy of the election. The election. I think that distinction is significant. If the president were to go to the inauguration, it makes it much harder for him to say, I do not accept Biden as the legitimate president of the United States. I think it's a mistake for the president like Biden not to encourage the president to attend. I hear you. I appreciate you saying that. That's why we keep referring to that video from yesterday as the, the non-concession concession. And, uh, you know, Biden essentially saying he's, he's thrilled he's not going to be coming because that's the one thing, you know, that they can all agree upon because this president, it, according to the president-elect, is just like this total embarrassment. Um, uh, Elliot, to the point, the, though, on, on that Phil was making about all these folks being prosecuted, all these rioters, um, how, how could they be charged? And how much jail time are we talking Oh, could potentially a lot. And just to, to repeat the, the, the protest chat, lock them up. Lock them all up. And, uh, you know, they could potentially uh, face a lot of charges. Now, look, there's no federal domestic terrorism statute that would allow for enhancements simply for the fact that there's terrorism. But there's all kinds of charges that these folks could be charged with. Trespass, seditious uh, conspiracy, damaging um, federal property, um, threatening uh, 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 federal officers, um, obstructing a, a, a proceeding of Congress, all kinds of things. Um, now, the far more important point, though, even more than, than the felonies they face, they really need to be tried in the District of Columbia. Now, many of them can and ultimately, sadly, will be tried in their jurisdictions back home. Like this individual in Arkansas, the federal law probably allows, or will allow him to be tried in Arkansas. Look, if you're a prosecutor, you want the most friendly jury possible, and the jury you want is a jury pool of people who live in a place, work for the federal government, don't want to see their city terrorized, and are more likely to vote for a conviction. I think they're sort of playing with fire by letting all these guys go back home, get arrested back there, and be tried, frankly, in far more friendly jurisdictions. So bring them back here, or they should have arrested them when they were here and charged them. But it's potentially years of jail time because a lot of these offenses could potentially be stacked on top of each other. And remember, um, there's, you know, there's acts of violence inside the Capitol building, and anyone who's present there can be charged and tried with uh, some of the violent offenses and damaging property that other people engaged in. It's called accomplice liability. Everybody's these um, sort of uh, thuggish accomplices working with each other, and yep. even if you're not the guy who broke the window, you could still be charged with it. So, so given the violence that, that we've seen, right, the, the proven violence from, from, from this minority of, of Trump supporters this week on the Capitol, Phil, last question to you is just inauguration. You know, 12 days away, held out in the elements. Um, how do we know that uh, Biden and Harris will be safe? I think there's a couple things. First, obviously, you'd expect to see a security presence that's unprecedented. But also, one of the questions in the past couple of days is why didn't federal authorities, including and Capitol Police authorities, see what was happening on social media and react more aggressively? I can guarantee you the feds working with state and locals are going to be looking not only at people who were involved a few days ago, but at anybody who's been in some of these circles like QAnon to see if they're to talk about the inauguration. A lot of preemptive work behind the scenes that's not physical, that's digital, bro. Planned this whole thing, executed it, broad daylight. Broad daylight. Failure at so many levels. Phil Mudd, Elliot Williams. Guys, thank you so much.
steps of the United States Capitol, breaking windows, breaking doors, forcing their way in, stepping aside. And the photographs of, I don't know what the circumstances, the photograph of it looked like you had some of the Capitol Police taking selfies with these people. That has to be thoroughly investigated. The authorities responsible have to be held accountable for the failures that occurred. And we have to make sure that this can never, ever happen again. The damage done to our reputation around the world by a president of the United States encouraging a mob, a mob. This reminded me more of states I've visited in the, over the hundred countries I've gone to in third tin-horned dictatorships. It just cannot be sustained. It has to be immediately, immediately investigated in depth, people have to be held accountable. Lastly, do you think you need to change any of the planning for your inauguration as a result of this? A totally different entity is in charge of the inauguration and is in charge of protecting the Capitol, the Secret Service. I have great confidence in the Secret Service. I have great confidence in their ability to make sure that the, the inauguration goes off, goes off safely, and goes off uh, uh, without a hitch. So it's a different, so I have confidence in what is going, in, in the planning that went underway before this and continues with the Secret Service as the lead agency. Thank you. President-elect Biden, Vice President-elect Harris, good to see you both. I want to pick up on something that you just said about President Trump actively encouraging the insurrection at the Capitol. Given that, given the perceived threat that he poses, my question to you is not so much about the role that Congress should play in impeachment, but rather, should President Trump, in your estimation, remain in office? I didn't think, look, I've been saying for now well over a year, he is not fit to serve. He is not fit to serve. He's one of the most incompetent, presidents in the history of the United States of America. And so the idea that I think he shouldn't be out of office yesterday is not the issue. The question is, what happens with 14 days left to go or 13 days left to go? And I think that what 81 million people stood up and said, it's time for him to go. And the United States Senate voted 93 to 6 to confirm that we should be sworn in. We were, we were duly elected. So I think it's important we get on with the business, getting him out of office. The quickest way that that will happen is us being sworn in on the 20th. What action happens before or after that is a judgment for the Congress to make, but that's what I am looking forward to, him leaving office. I was told that on the way up here, on the way over here, that he indicated he wasn't going to show up at the, uh, at the inauguration. Oh. One of the few things he and I have ever agreed on. It's a good thing I'm not showing up. Earlier you said that if uh, you'd hope that he would show up only in the sense that it was valuable to send a signal to the world about the transfer of power. You've clearly changed your perspective on that. Because he has clearly demonstrated, he's exceeded even my worst notions about him. <laughs> he's been an embarrassment country, embarrassed us around the world, not worthy, not worthy to hold that office. If we were six months out, we should be moving everything to 
get him out of office, impeaching him again, invoke, trying to invoke the 25th Amendment, whatever it took to get him out of office. But I am focused now on us taking control as president and vice president on the 20th and to get our agenda moving as quickly as we can. Thank you. Another question about holding public officials uh, to account, and this is about an issue that's no longer a headline but is no less significant and serious, and it's about the more than 600 children who were orphaned under the Trump administration as a result of the family separation policy along the border. During the campaign, you said that practice was criminal. Can you commit, will you commit to making sure that the Trump administration officials responsible for that policy will be held to account? I'll commit that our... Justice Department and our investigative arms will make judgments about who is responsible, how they're responsible, and whether or not the conduct is criminal across the board. But as I said yesterday, I am not going to tell the Justice Department who they should prosecute and who they should not. That's a judgment that will be made by the Attorney General of the United States of America, not influenced by me. But there will be a thorough, thorough investigation of who's responsible and whether or not the responsibility is criminal. And if that is concluded, the attorney general will make that judgment. I will not intervene to tell him who he should or shouldn't indict or if he should indict. And lastly, beyond the COVID plan, which you've detailed, what, is your, what are your legislative priorities? You've talked about infrastructure. You've talked about introducing an immigration bill. After January 20th, you'll control, Democrats rather, will control the House and the Senate. What do you do first? Two different, three different issues there that same question. One, commitments I made that I, what I would introduce, not necessarily we would move to, but introduce in the United States Congress first, I will do. I will introduce an immigration bill immediately and have it sent to the appropriate committees to begin moving. I will, in fact, countermand executive orders that the president has, in fact, initiated are contrary to what I think is either his authority and or, even if it's his authority, contrary to the interests of the United States on environmental issues and a whole range of other things. And thirdly, I will immediately move to the most urgent need of asking the Congress to give me the financial wherewithal to deal with the virus, to deal with the virus, to be able to move so that we have Operation Warp Speed really working. Warp speed got the, the, uh, the vaccine to places that were delivered, but did not get them from those vials into people's arms. And so it is a gigantic logistical concern of how we do that. I'm committed to get 100 million shots in people's arms in the first 100 days. I'm committed to insisting that on all federal jurisdictions any place I have control as president, everyone will be mandated to wear a mask in interstate transportation as well as federal facilities. And thirdly, I'm committed to moving as rapidly as possible to get the vaccine to teachers and the material to children that can provide for the safe opening of our schools at the end of that beginning, at the end of that 100 days. They are the most urgent things we have to do now. Now immediately upon getting office. There's going to be multiple things, as you well know, because you're a seasoned veteran of how this policy, how we work. And that is that there will be other committees will be holding hearings on a whole range of issues from my positions on 
infrastructure, what we should be doing to generate uh, um, a green economy, how we, and so on. But in terms of the immediate need to get done, not just introduced, but to get done, voted on, and get the money and resources to do it, it turns out that the most urgent need is dealing with the virus, number one, and economic relief to Americans who, through no fault of their own, are really getting battered. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Mr. President-elect and Madam Vice President-elect. I want to follow up with respect to what you just said about the inauguration and that it's a good thing that uh, the president is not coming. But what about the vice president, Mike Pence? He's welcome. I think it's important that um, the as much as we can stick to what have been the historical precedents of how and the circumstances in which an administration changes should be maintained. And so if Mike, if the vice president is welcome to come, we'd be honored to have him there and, uh, and to move forward in the transition. Have you spoken to him at all? No, I haven't. And you have called for unity and healing in this country, but after the events of Wednesday, does that make your job easier or harder? I think it makes my job easier, quite frankly. I've had a number of my Republican colleagues, former colleagues, I used to serve in the Senate for a long time, call me. They are, many of them are as outraged and disappointed and embarrassed and mortified by the president's conduct as I am and Democrats are. And I think it's, I, I, I have said from the beginning, and I have not changed my view, my overarching objective is to unify this country. We must unify the country. And I think that you've heard me say this before, and I apologize for repeating myself, but understandably the questions are repetitive and good. I mean, I'm not being critical of the question. And that is that there's two ways people are inspired, by inspirational leaders and by terrible leaders, by terrible leaders. What this president has done is ripped the Band-Aid all the way off to let the country know who he is and what he's about and how thoroughly unfit for office he is. And you see already a number of Republicans. I was so proud. I know we're on opposite sides. I'll get criticized from some of the people in my party for saying this, but I've worked very hard with and against the former, the president, the former, soon to be former majority leader, Mitch McConnell. I thought what he said on the floor of the United States Senate was, in fact, the right thing to do. He stood up. He's ashamed. I spoke with a guy I have enormous respect for, enormous respect for, and I ran against him, Mitt Romney. I spoke to Mitt this morning again. This is a man of enormous integrity, enormous integrity, who lives his faith. There are so many more, but there's others who should be ashamed of themselves but they make up a minority of the Republican Party. This isn't about Republican Democrat anymore. This is about people who understand what this country is about and the things we have to agree on and move together on. I, I just think that um, if you look at it, uh, speaking to some of my Republican colleagues, and I've spoken to a number of them over the last uh, 
last month since I've been since we've been elected through recently as the day in which this god awful debacle was taking place up on the hill. And uh, I think they understand that they're going to have to. We need a Republican Party. We need an opposition that's principled and strong. I think you're going to see them going through this idea of what constitutes the Republican Party. And to hear some of my colleagues, Republican colleagues, talk about how shameful it is of the way Ted Cruz and others are dealing with this, how they're responsible as well for what happened. Do you Not think some of them should resign? Should Senator Cruz or Senator well, Hawley resign? I think they should be just flat beaten the next time they run. I think the American public has a real good, clear look at who they are. They're part of the big lie. The big lie. I was being reminded by a friend of mine, maybe you were with me, I can't recall, when we were told that, you know, Goebbels and the great lie, you keep repeating the lie, repeating the lie. Well, there was a print that when Dresden was bombed, firebombed, there were 250 people that were killed. Was it 2,500 people were killed? And Goebbels said, no, 25,000 or 250,000 were killed. And our papers printed that. Our papers printed it. It's the big lie. People will know it's one thing for one man, one woman, to repeat the lie over and over and over again. By the way, Trump said that before he ran. If you say it enough, I'm going to convince you. I'll say it enough. The press is bad. The press is bad. The press is bad. The press is bad. If he's the only one saying it, that's one thing. But the acolytes that follow him, like Cruz and others, they are as responsible as he is. And so it's not about whether or not they get impeached. It's about whether or not they help, can continue to hold power because of the, the disgust that the American people have for their actions. There are decent people out there who actually believe these lies because they've heard it again and again. I was with a friend of mine who's a medical doctor telling me that his neighbor said to him, he lives in another state, his neighbor's a good person, said, but you know, Doc, this is true. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, a lot of chicanery that went on in this election. He said, tell me what, well, I just know there was. They say it is. They say it is. This is a human condition. You say it and say it and say it and say it. The degree to which it becomes corrosive is in direct proportion to the number of people who say it. And so it's interesting to me, and I was pleased to hear some of the more prominent Republicans say to me that Ted Cruz's of the world are as responsible in terms of people believing the lies as not as responsible, but similarly responsible like Trump. But they didn't say, go to the Capitol. I'll be with you. Follow. That's a different story. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all very, very much. Appreciate it. Thank you.
Here's the breaking news now. CNN has obtained the latest version of the articles of impeachment that will be formally introduced by House Judiciary Democrats on Monday. This is provided by a Democratic source, and it includes one article, which is incitement of insurrection. Let's start there with our CNN senior congressional correspondent, Manu Raju. So, Manu, tell me more about the article and just how lawmakers plan to go about this. Well, if, assuming that the House does go to impeach, and that's where the direction is headed right now, this could move pretty quickly. We could expect a vote in the full House potentially by the middle of next week, if not even in the early part of next week. This uh, measure to impeach the president includes one count, and that is incitement of an insurrection. That is, uh, according to the draft language that is now being circulated, has been drafted by uh, several Judiciary Committee Democrats, including Congressman David Cicilline, Ted Lieu, and Jamie Raskin. And as part of this, it also uh, makes very clear, it says that President Trump, in their view, has acted in a manner grossly incompatible with the self-governance self and the rule of law. It says President Trump thus warrants impeachment and trial, removal from office, and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. And that last line is important because we're looking at the timing of all of this, and the president, of course, is... is done with his term come January 20th. We're looking at a possible impeachment vote in the House next week. So if in order to remove the president from office, you need to have a trial in the Senate. Two-thirds of the Senate, 67 members, need to vote to actually remove the president from office. Republicans control, currently control the Senate up until January 20th when the majority flips to the Democratic control. And right now, there's no indication that Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader at the moment, that wants to actually have a Senate trial before Donald Trump leaves office. That means, Brooke, that there could potentially be a Senate trial after Donald Trump leaves office. And I am told on a conference call that happened this afternoon with House Democrats, this was something that they discussed, the possibility of having a trial in the beginning part of the new Biden administration with the new Senate Democratic majority. There were concerns about, about it could be awkward to begin the Biden administration with a trial at the same time concerned about those possible pitfalls that could uh, if, if they, they could face. But those are things they're still trying to sort through. And a critical moment this afternoon will be when Nancy Pelosi speaks with Joe Biden. And we just heard Joe Biden did not embrace the idea of going forward with impeachment, saying it's up to the Congress to decide. So we'll see what those two decide when they talk. But at the moment, Brooke, momentum for impeachment by House Democrats. Sounds like he's saying he's not going to get in the way of Nancy Pelosi, but he's also not not championing the idea either. That is huge that the Senate may take it up during the Biden administration. Manu, thank you so much for, for the latest there. Uh, three White House advisors tell CNN that President Donald Trump has, quote, zero intention of resigning. Caitlin Collins is live at the White House on this angle. And so, Caitlin, despite all of these calls and, and resignations, you're hearing President Trump is planning to stay put for the next 12 days. D does he acknowledge his role in this at all? No, I don't think the president's view of what's transpired this week has changed. You know, often it can be shaped by the coverage, but the president usually finds a way to deflect criticism. And he taped that video last night. We were calling it a non-concession concession speech, of course. And we were told that was the direct result of pressure from senior staff who said, if you do not come out more forcefully and denounce what happened in the nation's capital on Wednesday, then you are at risk, serious risk of being removed from office. And so you saw the president say those scripted words 
words last night. Of course, that doesn't mean his opinion of what happened has changed since he was actually described as being happy as he was watching that chaos that was unfolding during the certification process. But I do think the people around the president are realizing that the threat of him actually potentially being impeached for a second time when they're about a year uh, of each other is growing. And it seems more real by the moment. And it doesn't it does seem more significant and more possible than actually the 25th Amendment being invoked. We're told that the vice president hasn't discussed that with any cabinet members, even as much as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has publicly talked about it and threatened impeachment if they do not go forward with that. It doesn't seem to be realistic right now. But yes, the president does not have any plans of resigning. Someone told me yesterday they would bet their savings account that the president is not going to step down from his role. But what happens in the next 12 days is really anyone's guess at this point. This is how the President of the United States initially described the domestic terrorists who launched a deadly insurrection on U.S. soil and attacked the Capitol in his name. We love you. You're very special. His daughter, Ivanka, called them American patriots as she asked them to stop attacking the Capitol before she deleted that tweet. But of course, this is hardly the first time the president has complimented violence done in his name or by his supporters. In 2015, after the beating of a homeless man by men spouting anti-immigrant rhetoric, saying that Donald Trump was right, he pretended not to know about it. He quickly called it a shame, but then he said this. I, I will say the people that are following are very passionate. They love this country. They want this country to be great again. He later tried to clean that up, calling the incident terrible. And in 2016, after a protester was punched by a Trump supporter at a rally. I thought it was very, very appropriate. That's what we need a little bit more of. In 2017, he tried to be funny, saying this to a Long Island audience that included police, giving officers a green light to rough up suspects. And when you see these thugs being thrown into the back of a paddy wagon, you just see him thrown in, rough. I said, please don't be too nice. Like when you guys put somebody in the car and you're protecting their head, you know, the way you put their hand. Or, like, don't hit their head and they've just killed somebody. Don't hit their head. I said, you can take the hand away, okay? Also that year, when neo-Nazis showed up in Charlottesville, Virginia, he tried equating them with the counter-protesters who were speaking up against them. You had a group on one side that was bad, and you had a group on the other side that was also very violent. And nobody wants to say that, but I'll say it right now. And you had some very bad people in that group. But you also had people that were very... Joining us now is Alyssa Farah. She is the former White House Communications Director under President Trump, who stepped down at the beginning of December. Alyssa, I appreciate your willingness to come on and talk to us. You left in early December because you say... You saw what was coming. What did you fear? Well, John, thanks Thanks again for having me. And first and foremost, I want to say that what happened at the Capitol was unacceptable, un-American, undemocratic, and any Republican, Democrat, person of any political stripes needs to be able to denounce it in the staunchest terms. Um, but I'll tell you this. my I had growing concerns about the fact that I felt like we were misleading the public with this endeavor to say that the election was stolen. 
there began with being legitimate questions about fraud, about irregularities. Um, this happens with most national elections and obviously when you're doing significant mail-in voting. But we had paths for recourse, you know, more than 60 cases that went before different courts, many with conservative judges. And we, it became abundantly clear, we just didn't win. And that's okay, that's foundational to a democracy. But when you have the President of the United States not telling that to the 74 million people who voted for him, it does a tremendous disservice to them. And it, it worked up this frenzy and this sort of mob that we saw at the Capitol, and it's just unacceptable. You say the President and his advisors are directly responsible for what happened. Responsible for what? Well, first responsible for inciting this violence and this attack on such a symbolic part of our democracy, the United States Capitol. I mean, I served in the Capitol for the better portion of a decade. I walked those halls. They allowed this, 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 this myth, this lie to take a life of its own that the election might be overturned. And what, what the president could have done in the hours that unfolded, and this is what, what truly broke my heart because he's a man that I served. Um, I believe in America First policies. I believe in much of our policy agenda, but he could have used those hours to put out a forceful denunciation directly to the protesters to say, stand down. I'm asking you to dissipate, leave the Capitol, go home, vote, elect Republicans, but this is not what we stand for. And hours went by and lives were lost in the wake, and he didn't come out and forcefully say that. And that's unacceptable at any level. Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick is dead this morning, died overnight from his injury, suffered during the insurrection. How responsible is the president for that? I mean, it's First and foremost, it's heartbreaking. My heart goes out to his family again. As someone who served in the Capitol, just like at the White House, you become friends with the Secret Service. I knew many of the Capitol Police. They are good law enforcement officers who put their lives on the line to protect our nation's leaders. And it's, it's, it's awful. I, I, this all could have been avoided. That would be my message. But the other message I want to make sure that the American people understand, and like I said, the 74 million people who supported this president, we lost. But that is okay. Vote, get out and vote for Republicans if that's what you believe in. We can stand by the policies, but at this point, we cannot stand by the man. When the moment called for leadership, he did not do the right thing, and lives were lost because of it. Can I just ask you to be declarative about this? Will you say that the president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, lied to the American people? He did on the election, and, and, and we, people around him know better. We know that the results were not going to be overturned. We knew that it was a stunt to carry this on for days longer. And I have to commend my former bo boss, uh, Vice President Pence, who is a man of con conviction and just the highest level of integrity. He did what his constitutional duty was. He wasn't going to rewrite the Constitution to get the outcome that he wanted. So, Alyssa, you quit the first week of December because you say it was then that you began to realize what might happen. And you do know that there are those asking this morning, what took you so long? What took you so long? And that's fair. And something I want to be clear about is I believed in the policy agenda and much of what we accomplished, and I'm proud of much of it. You know, creating the most inclusive economy in American history, record low black unemployment, Hispanic unemployment, female unemployment. I'm somebody who believes in economic opportunity. And I was willing to serve, and I also believe anytime you're asked to serve your nation, you should seriously consider saying yes. 
But what it, when I lost the, I, I knew I couldn't influence outcomes when this runaway train of the election was stolen, got, got wind underneath it. And that's when it was time for me to step down. I wasn't going to mislead people. People I love, people I care about were believing it. They were saying, no, Alyssa, I think he's still going to pull it off. And I would plead with people personally and privately, like, please know he's not going to. We lost the election and that is okay. That is what happens in a democracy. Politics is cyclical. Um, but this was bound. If you tell people their vote was stolen, so foundational to who we are as a country, of course it's going to end in violence and in riots. What, and it's uh, awful. Do you ask yourself what more you could have done and sooner to prevent this? I Specific to the election issue, I, I just don't know. I was ready to go out after election day and say, look, there were incredible things we should be proud of. Record uh, Hispanic turnout for Republicans, record black turnout for Republicans, electing so many women to the House of Representatives and say, you know, this president never planned to be in Washington forever. He didn't win, but there's a lot we should be proud of in our agendas moving forward. But I was asked to stand down and the message instead of the election was stolen is what won the day. And it's wrong. And the American people need to know you can trust your institutions. You can trust your vote. Um, we didn't win because we just came up short. And that happens. Would you feel safer this morning if President Trump resigned? I think that it's something he should seriously consider. I don't think that when you've got just a number of days left, there's any need to carry on kind of the charade of an impeachment. The People's House needs to get back to work. We need to get aid to tens of millions of Americans. Um, but... I, listen, I think uh, Vice President Pence has stepped in um, as the real leader, getting the National Guard during this crisis that unfolded. And, John, I would just say to you, you know, I've traveled all over the world, and I've spent time in democracies much more fragile than ours. And what I saw in the Capitol is not representative of who America just is. Just to be clear, and it should never you would feel safer today if President Trump resigned and Mike President, uh, Vice President Mike Pence took over? I would. Could you ever support Donald Trump again for election? I wouldn't. And just candidly, there is a lot that he did right. There is a lot in the America First policy agenda that Republicans should hang on to. I want us to keep those votes of the 74 million people. I want us to build on the good of Donald Trump. But in a moment that called for leadership, that called for compassion, that caused for quick judgment to save lives, he, he came up short. He didn't make the right call. To those who say to you, Alyssa Ferry, you're doing this now because you want a job somewhere after this. You're doing this now uh, to clean up your own reputation, you say? I Well, I have a job for one, but um, I stand by the positions I held in the White House, um, the public statements I made, the private counsel that I gave. Um, my belief was always it's better to be in the room and try to influence outcomes for the better than to cede that um, position of authority to somebody who may not have best interest of the country at heart, who may not have my values and convictions. Um, I'm, I consider myself proud of my service, um, but I understand that for many people we are hurting because of the direction that this president has taken us. And to them, I would extend, it is time for us to rebuild as a party and as a country to come together and to remember, remember fundamentally there is more that unites us as Americans than that divides us. Alyssa Farah, as I said, I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate your willingness to talk to us, talk to the American people, and importantly, talk to the 70 more million people who voted for Donald Trump. We appreciate your time. Thank you.
but I do want to play the video. As we said, the president was putting out another video, and he just has. Uh, we have obtained it from the White House. I'll play it. I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack on the United States Capitol. Like all Americans, I am outraged by the violence, lawlessness, and mayhem. I immediately deployed the National Guard and federal law enforcement to secure the building and expel the intruders. America is and must always be a nation of law and order. The demonstrators who infiltrated the Capitol have defiled the seat of American democracy. To those who engage in the acts of violence and destruction, you do not represent our country. And to those who broke the law, you will pay. We have just been through an intense election, and emotions are high. But now tempers must be cooled and calm restored. We must get on with the business of America. My campaign vigorously pursued every legal avenue to contest the election results. My only goal was to ensure the integrity of the vote. In so doing, I was fighting to defend American democracy. I continue to strongly believe that we must reform our election laws to verify the identity and eligibility of all voters and to ensure faith and confidence in all future elections. Now Congress has certified the results. A new administration will be inaugurated on January 20th. My focus now turns to ensuring a smooth, orderly, and seamless transition of power. This moment calls for healing and reconciliation. 2020 has been a challenging time for our people. A menacing pandemic has upended the lives of our citizens, isolated millions in their homes, damaged our economy, and claim countless lives. Defeating this pandemic and rebuilding the greatest economy on Earth will require all of us working together. It will require a renewed emphasis on the civic values of patriotism, faith, charity, community, and family. We must revitalize the sacred bonds of love and loyalty that bind us together as one national family. To the citizens of our country, serving as your president has been the honor of my lifetime. And to all of my wonderful supporters, I know you are disappointed, but I also want you to know that our incredible journey is only just beginning. Thank you, God bless you, and God bless America. Okay, uh, just over two minutes there, the President of the United States, 30 hours after what happened, coming out on tape, not speaking live. Um, calling it an outrage, the mayhem, the desecration, reading from a prompter there. Um, he did uh, notably uh, say that the election had been certified and that a new administration would uh, be taking over on January 20th. He, of course, did not use Joe Biden's name. He did not uh, formally concede. Uh, he did say, of course, that the journey was just beginning with his supporters. This is, though, very different than what he said yesterday. Uh, my panel is with me. So, Dana, what's your uh, reaction uh, to this as, as we hear it now. Well, it is obviously a very different tone. You asked about uh, what's going on inside the White House, the fact that there was a lot of pressure on him and has been a lot of pressure on him uh, from the very few people who remain around him, some of whom had wanted to resign and have been uh, asked not to resign, to try to keep him as, as, as sort of, you know, on target as he possibly can be. Um, so, yes, he, for the first time, 
accepted the reality that there will be a new president, uh, claimed that he wants a peaceful transition because he was begged to do that after the violence that it took lives, uh, violence that he incited. But there's just, you know, there are a couple things we need to call out. The most egregious, Aaron, is at the beginning where he talked about the fact that he immediately deployed the National right. Guard. No, he didn't. Not true. Not only did he not immediately deploy the National Guard, you had his vice president, who he wasn't talking to, um, in a secure location after he was whisked off the Senate floor, uh, being called by the Republican and Democratic leadership in Congress saying, where is the National Guard? We cannot get this under control. And it was the vice president who had to make an additional call to the Pentagon to say, we need help. So that is a total lie. And and the other thing I will just say, just uh, in terms of the mechanics of this, he put this video on Twitter. So I said before he can't tweet, it seems as though his Twitter account is back. Right, his Twitter account is back. But, uh, you know, and let's go back to Caitlin here. Um, again, this is not something that he did live. Uh, Joe Biden has addressed the nation live twice in the past 30 hours, right? Uh, Donald Trump has not yet done so, Caitlin. This is on video, uh, but obviously done under immense pressure from those remaining around him. Yeah, well, and also he, he's saying a lot of things that were not consistent with what we were told by people who were speaking to the president and around the president yesterday. But I do think this is Donald Trump's concession speech. This is as close as we were getting to it. We've talked about other moments where the president kind of acknowledged he might not be in office. This is the first time, even though he does not name Joe Biden, that he is clearly acknowledging that there will be a new administration. And when he says that, he's not talking about a second Trump administration, as he said so many times over the last few months as he's contested these results and fought back against them. He is finally acknowledging that, and he is committing to a peaceful transition of power on camera in his own words, though, of course, scripted here, but it is the president himself actually saying it, which does um, mean something different to his supporters as they are receiving this, and they're being receptive to what it is the president is saying, though, of course, we should note it is January 7th, and it took this long for the president to get here, and it took a mob of his supporters breaching the Capitol for us to get this video from the president. We didn't get this video yesterday. We got it, you know, this is like his fifth iteration of a response to what happened yesterday. But it is the president acknowledging he will not be in office two weeks from now. And I do think it's in response to a lot of the threats of mass resignations, the talk about removing him from office. This is the president trying to tamp down that response and what these final few days could look like. And though we should note, he did not instantly deploy the National Guard as he claims at the beginning right. of this video. Multiple sources said he pushed back against it. He also says that he doesn't agree with the, he's outraged by the violence, lawlessness, and mayhem from yesterday. That's not what we were told by sources who have been speaking to him, who said he had a much different reaction. But it is notable he is finally coming out with this video. Right, now. I know that many had said he was borderline enthusiastic, and of course that uh, is clearly the truth because he didn't condemn it. He didn't do anything of the sort, right, until until now. So David Gergen, contextualize this. Um, obviously, it appears this, you know, look, he couldn't bring himself to say Joe Biden's name, right? That, that wasn't able to go that far. Uh, but this is an admission that he will not be president at, on, on January 20th. I guess this is, this, is, this is what we'll get. Yes, it's just valedictory in many ways. I think Caitlin's right. It, it sounds about the concession speech. But, uh, Aaron, this man has incredible chutzpah. You know, to come out and make that speech after he was the one who incited a mob to, to, to capture Capitol Hill as if he were the one who was rescuing the country? 
uh, and to come out and claim make all these other claims. He, I don't know how we're going to resolve what the, his future, but he no longer deserves the benefit of the doubt when he makes a presidential speech, which in which he probably doesn't believe about half of it or more, or more than that. No, certainly not. Again, yesterday, what he was saying, right, about about the, the rigging and all of the things, right? So he didn't use the word rig this time. Um, you know, there was no way that right. was going to be allowed. I think it's been made clear to him by, by people around him. Harry, I, I, a question to you is, what impact does something like this have, right? We're talking about 30 hours after the fact, right? When you talk about the whole situation here of people looking at him and people resigning and 25th Amendment and, and people investigating his role and the possibility of charges... This is not relevant at all to the charges, obviously, correct? But but it could not be very, it could be the people's twenty fifth amendment pursuit. Yes. I think it is what motivated it, but it isn't relevant. A couple uh, points. First, there's a chilling aspect here, the very end where he says this is just beginning. Yep. So he's announcing that Trumpism will continue. That that has to give everyone a uh, pause. Second, these are the same people who he said yesterday, literally, he loves them. So it's going to be hard to find that very uh, persuasive. And there was overall sort of robotic quality to the speech. But he was obviously woodshedded and felt he had to do this, perhaps in part because he's persuaded that even his 13-day uh, uh, handle on power may be slipping. And, and to be clear, Harry also said, those who broke the law, to those who broke the law, you will pay. Obviously, that is, that is the opposite of what he was right. saying yesterday. Um, but, you know, when you look at sedition and inciting, he himself may have broken the law, right? He incited this. Very much. So there's a there's a, a seditious conspiracy and a regular sedition, assuming no 25th Amendment, which I think will not happen, and no impeachment, which I think is a little less likely. That's what they'll be looking at. And one of the two charges disables him from holding office permanently. That'll be a serious upside that the department will consider. And Dana, he's also playing the game here. I think it's safe to say that he's played again and again, right? You go up to the line. This is what he's tried to do before. And then you do just enough to get, you know, your Republicans back on board, right? Back on board, everybody, get back on board. How different will this be? You have yeah. Barr, you have McMaster, you have Kelly just playing for the 25th Amendment. People who had worked for him left and remained silent now speaking out, right? You have um, multiple Republicans on Capitol Hill calling for the 25th Amendment. You have mass resignations. Does this change anything? Yes, because you uh, said that we've seen so many times the president go up to the line and then pull back. He crossed the line. He stomped on the line. He desecrated the line. And and that is the reason why we have seen uh, so many people come out uh, from John Kelly to, to Barr to, I mean, you know, people who uh, were, had to resign or not had to, but they felt the need to resign. Uh, currently, uh, from his uh, from his administration, that is the big difference. And um, you know, he is finally, you know, seeing some form of the light. But it is obviously too too little, too late um, when it comes to his legacy. It is too little, too late when it comes to uh, people in his party following him blindly, like they have for the most part, uh, or at least you know, biting their tongue like they have for the most part, that is not going to change. And yes, Trumpism will be around. Even what happened yesterday won't stop that. But the fire is is a lot less intense than it was.
past several weeks, and years for that matter, many in the Republican establishment here in Washington fed and nurtured a monster that was growing in their midst. Conspiracy theories, white supremacy, nationalism, violent political rhetoric, and the bastardization of the Constitution. They tried to harness the power of this monster, insisting that it wasn't actually a monster at all, as if our eyes were just deceiving us, even as the monster grew out of control in clear view. Well, yesterday, that monster overcame those Republicans. Trump supporters stormed the Capitol. They injured several police officers. They threatened the safety of the vice president and the entire Senate and the entire House, as well as the thousands of staffers and journalists who work there, while Congress was certifying Joe Biden's Electoral College win. Four people died. The Capitol Police say an officer shot one woman as protesters were seen on video attempting to break a door down inside the building, and police are investigating that. And now many Republicans are trying to rewrite history to cover their asses, like Senator Josh Hawley, one of the ringleaders of this coup attempt. Missouri's junior senator became the first to object to Joe Biden's win. His basis for doing so? Lies and conspiracy theories. Shortly before the attack, he appeared for a photo op for his expected 2024 run for president, raising a fist outside the Capitol to Trump supporters there. There he is. The same Senator Hawley, who the night before appeared on Fox to say how furious he was that liberal protesters showed up outside of his home with bullhorns. This Antifa group now says, oh, it was a candlelight vigil. We were singing oh, yeah. songs, you know, like it's a church choir or something, with bullhorns, you know, screaming at my wife, demanding come out, come out, pounding on our door. This is unbelievable. The bottom line is, Laura, nobody should have this happen to him. If it can happen to my family, it can happen to any yeah. family in America. Now, he tweeted that, quote, we're not going to sit back and take it. And you can imagine how upsetting it would be to have protesters show up at your house, right? He said he wasn't home, but his wife was with their newborn, and she was shaken. But during the siege on the Capitol, Hawley blasted out a fundraising appeal to supporters. And then after the attack, he continued his attempt to overturn a Democratic election, going on his merry way like an attack on the Capitol that made the protest at his house look quaint didn't just happen. This is the place where those objections are to be heard and dealt with debated and finally resolved in this lawful means peacefully without violence without attacks without bullets and so mr president let me just say now briefly in lieu of speaking about it later a word about pennsylvania senator ted cruz another architect of the coup attempt he stood before a crowd in georgia over the weekend and said this i am inspired each of you look around, the men and women that are gathered here. You are patriots, just like the patriots gathered at Bunker Hill, just like the patriots gathered at Valley Forge, just like the patriots who forged this nation. The men and women gathered here and across the state of Georgia are fighting for the United States of America. Bunker Hill, Valley Forge, fighting for the fate of the United States of America. When domestic terrorists were inspired to storm the Capitol like a scene out of Braveheart, here's how they explained it to CNN's Donio Sullivan and Ellie Reed. I'm excited that for 1776, we the people movement is moving forward. One man I talked to had pushed through the barricades and described the police macing them and him fighting back. And I was like, 
what's the point? And he said, what's the point? Like, this is our only choice. This is the only option we have. The Supreme Court doesn't have our backs. This is 1776. Now, where would they have gotten that idea? Maybe from Ted, who me couldn't be Cruz, who made a fundraising pitch during the attack that his office later blamed on an outside firm. Ted Cruz, who said this after the attack. But I would urge to both sides perhaps a bit less certitude and a bit more recognition that we are gathered at a time when democracy is in crisis. Recent polling shows that 39% of Americans believe the election that just occurred, quote, was rigged. No, duh, because leaders like Cruz are spoon-feeding them lies that the election was rigged and urging them to fight the result by comparing the rejection of Joe Biden's win in the year 2020 to opposing British rule during the American Revolutionary War. Then there's outgoing Senator Kelly Leffler, who just the night before lost her runoff election against Senator-elect Raphael Warnock. She, too, was objecting to Joe Biden's win, planning to challenge it on the Senate floor. But after the attack, she backed off. I cannot now in good conscience object to the certification of these electors. 24 hours earlier, when she still had a political future, she fueled the opposition to Biden's win. On January 6th, I will object to the Electoral College vote. And then there is Senator Lindsey Graham, one of the president's most famous apologists and enablers. Here he is speaking on the floor after the attack. From my point of view, he's been a consequential president. But today, first thing you'll see, all I can say is uh, count me out. Enough is enough. I've tried to be helpful. He's out, huh? 13 days to go in the Trump administration, and now enough is enough? When the monster that he helped create threatened his life. But hold up, wait a minute, because as Lindsey Graham came to Jesus on the extent to which he would endure this non-presidential behavior from the president yesterday, he also tried to rewrite history lambasting voter fraud claims from the Trump campaign. They say there's 66,000 people in Georgia under 18 voted. How many people believe that? I asked, give me 10. And had one. They said 8,000 felons in prison in Arizona voted. Give me 10. Had got one. That would be commendable from a senator who had not allegedly called up Georgia's Republican Secretary of State to pressure him to find ways to exclude or invalidate legally cast absentee ballots in an attempt to reverse Trump's loss in Georgia. Now, that claim from the state's Republican Secretary of State sparked an ethics complaint, but Graham says the claim is ridiculous and he just wanted to know more about signature verification. And then there's the conspiracy theory that is out there right now in right-wing circles that it wasn't actually Trump supporters who perpetrated this attack. Yeah, that is what is being talked about in right-wing media right now. And they're getting an assist from some of the most powerful Republican lawmakers in Washington as they try to blame liberal extremists for the failed coup at the Capitol. 
people came here to do some damage. I don't know who they're with, but they came here to do some damage. We knew this big crowd was coming, right? We knew they were coming. We knew, you know, whether Antifa was in there or not, we, we'll find out more. That was the House Minority Leader, Kevin McCarthy, breathing life into the conspiracy theory that this was a false flag operation. Leftists pretending to be Trump supporters storming the Capitol, even though it was the president who summoned these crowds to D.C., who spoke at their rally, who offered to walk them over to the Capitol and then defended them after the attack. Many of the people shown in video entering... an award-winning investigative journalist, I might add. Um, tell me a little bit about your background and what propelled you to run for office. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, I, I guess I'll start with the, the personal stuff. So my mother is an immigrant uh, who came to the United States from Australia when she was in her early 20s. Uh, and she met my father. They settled down in Atlanta. Uh, my wife, Alicia, is also from Atlanta. She's an OBGYN doctor at Grady Hospital, working mostly in labor and delivery. Uh, so, I mean, just the heroism of, of her and her colleagues. Say that again. I, I just want to mention, I used to live in Atlanta, and I have a lot of family from Atlanta, and my dad's from Dublin, Georgia, so I, I'm very familiar with the state, so it's fun for me to hear you mention Grady Hospital. Sorry to interrupt, continue. I was at the Hometown Grill in Dublin like 72 hours ago. Seriously? Yeah, I really was. That's I was so just in Dublin. Anyway, so your wife's an OBGYN, which is very impressive. Continue, sorry. No problem. Yeah, she's an OBGYN, uh, and I run a 30-year-old media production company called Insight TWI. We produce undercover anti- We had some technical difficulties, so sorry. Yes. Um, no, no, no problem. No problem. Okay. It, was, uh, it was on my end. Where did you lose me? Uh, I lost you after you were talking about your wife being an uh, OBGYN and how your mom's an immigrant, and, and really, that's where we kind of lost you. Got it, yes. So Alicia works as an OBGYN, uh, mostly at Grady here, and I run a 30-year-old media production company that's called Insight TWI, and we specialize in a few things, mostly long-term, undercover investigations of corruption and organized crime, as well as investigations of war crimes and frontline conflict reports. So in the last few years, for example, we've produced multiple investigations of ISIS atrocities against women and girls in northern Iraq. We've produced long-term undercover investigations of human trafficking organizations, bribery of judges, uh, murder for hire schemes, death squads. And I love doing this work because I'm passionate about exposing corruption and the abuse of power. And you, you went to Georgetown, right? Did you go to the School of Public Service, right, uh, at Georgetown, which uh, a friend of mine just said is very, very difficult to get into. Um, but what, 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 what drew you to investigative reporting, and did that inspire you to want to run for office? Well, I went to Georgetown School of Foreign Service because I was interested in foreign affairs and current affairs, and actually at that time thought that I might want to pursue a career in diplomacy. And uh, the School of Foreign Service, you know, a lot of folks who graduate from, from the SFS at Georgetown wind up going to the State Department. Uh, 
Um, but my very first exposure to anything like public service was working as a very, very young man for Congressman John Lewis. Right. And uh, I um, you know, only spent a couple of months in his office, but being the kind of man that he was, he really took me under his wing and guided me uh, through my career and, and my personal life and became a mentor and a, and a, and a friend. And I wound up working for another member of Congress from Georgia named Hank Johnson. He uh, was on the Armed Services Committee, which, as you know, oversees the Department of Defense. Um, and so rather than going into diplomacy, I was working on uh, foreign policy and national security policy in Congressman Johnson's office. But the truth is that after years working uh, on Capitol Hill, I just became so disgusted by how corrupt Washington is, how lobbyists and cash run everything. This is um, this was around in, in the time when uh, Mitch McConnell was blocking everything that President Obama wanted to do. So little was getting done. And that's why I went into journalism, is that it, it, it was a, a purer endeavor. And, uh, you know, the opportunity to attack wrongdoing head on the way that you can when you're producing investigative journalism for for a large audience. How did how, before we talk about sort of if, if that in fact inspired you to run for office, John Lewis, it must have been heartbreaking for you as it was for so many people across the nation when he died of, of pancreatic cancer. And uh, I had the pleasure of meeting him a number of times. And I'm curious how he really shaped your political views and how he influenced. Uh, you know, who you are today. Yeah, he had a profound impact on me. And I mean, it's interesting with what's happening in Georgia right now, Katie, and the sort of parallels and the way that all of this, um, all of this seems that it happens for a reason. And if you follow me through on this, the very first time I had a meal with Congressman Lewis, what he wanted to talk to me about was the historic alliance between Jews and blacks in the South. He wanted, because I was a young Jewish man working in his office, he wanted to talk to me about how he had marched alongside rabbis and Jewish activists in the civil rights movement. He at that time represented Georgia's fifth district, which as you know, most of the city of Atlanta with a large black and a large Jewish population. And he wanted to impress upon me how important he thought it was to nurture that alliance. And so I, I know now that he is looking down on what's happening in Georgia with pride because got the young Jewish journalist, son of an immigrant, mentored by John Lewis. And I'm running alongside, because remember, there's two Senate races, everybody who's tuned in. You got two Senate races in Georgia, and I'm running alongside a black preacher who holds Dr. King's pulpit at Ebenezer Baptist Church, who himself, Reverend Warnock, pastored John Lewis. And I just think that that's a beautiful clarification of where we are in Georgia now, how far we've come, that this is the team, and this is the moment. And I think that Congressman Lewis, no doubt, is uh, is looking down and smiling on us. I know the latest polls, John, show you and, and Reverend Warnock just one point, and the race is extremely close right now. And as you go on the campaign trail, what is animating voters in Georgia? Is it local, or, or do you think they're focused on local issues? Or is it the fact that the the, the Senate and the, the composition of the Senate hangs in the balance and that 
if you and Reverend Warnock win, then it will be, be much easier for Joe Biden to get his uh, agenda through. So everybody knows that these implications are vast. Everybody knows that the Senate majority is on the line. So the, the national stakes are clear to voters here. And those national stakes mean that there is profound local impact. And the impact of these races in Georgia is similar to the impact on these races on the whole country. Whether the incoming administration will be able to resource the public health response and get funds to the CDC and hospital systems and nurses and doctors and epidemiologists who have been sidelined by the Trump administration this year. Whether the Biden administration will be able to pass direct stimulus relief for families and small businesses, and then invest in the kind of infrastructure, jobs, clean energy plan that will need to rebuild this economy. Whether we're gonna be able to pass a new voting rights act and a new civil rights act. I mean, one of the things that I reflect on a lot and thinking about the obligation that we have and the opportunity that we have here in Georgia to really make a difference is that the next two years can be the most productive for civil and voting rights since 1964 1965. And if we achieve that, if we pass a new Civil Rights Act and a new Voting Rights Act, that means criminal justice reform, that means an end to voter suppression, we'll look back on the peaceful mobilization that happened after Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd were killed as our generation's equivalent of the march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge on Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama that John Lewis and Amelia Boynton and Hosea Williams led. I mean, that is the opportunity that we have to make a difference here, but we can only get these things done if we win these races, because as everybody knows, the Senate majority hangs in the balance. And in fact, you think that your age, you're 33 years old, John, that in a way it works to your advantage. Do you think you represent kind of a generational shift in the Democratic Party and uh, know the the majority of people although i think it's quite diverse in all ages but the people have really galvanized the movement for ju social justice in this country are on the younger side so is that why you believe your age is an advantage for you well i think that young people are the core of so much of this energy within the democratic party right now and youth turnout is essential to winning and i think it does help to have some youth on the ballot I mean, it's interesting because, you know, folks ask me this question like, uh, you know, is, is being young a disadvantage? And what, what I think is that my youth is one of my greatest strengths as a candidate because we have to get young people out to the polls. And that means we need perspectives in candidates that reflect the perspectives of a younger generation. I mean, young people right now are demanding change, demanding investment in clean energy and action on the environment, which has been deferred so long, demanding criminal justice reform and a new civil rights act and true equal justice under the law, which we simply do not have in this country. Young people are demanding the opportunity to go and get a college degree at a public college or at an HBCU without debt. And a lot of young people who have come out of school with huge debt are demanding significant student debt relief. So young people have demands, young people have needs, young people have unmet needs. And one of the important things that I want to do is, is communicate to, to all the young people out there that we can make change, we can enact legislation that will help, but you got to come out and vote for us well, to be able to do it. 
That brings me to my next question. You know, a lot of people were motivated to come out and vote in November uh, because of their their uh, support or lack thereof of Donald Trump. And there was fear from the very beginning, uh, or at least after the election, when the front out was announced, that people were not going to turn out for a Senate race. Um, and, and how are you fighting potential apathy about a Senate race, John? I don't think there's any apathy at all. I mean, I, I truly don't feel concerned about that because what I'm seeing here in Georgia is this huge energy that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris' victory here has helped to solidify. I think taking a step back, you know, there's been all this uh, political organizing and volunteerism and this kind of renaissance in civic engagement in the Trump era, right? I mean people who maybe never had been involved in politics before. A lot of this volunteerism led by women nationwide, you know, starting from the Women's March and on and all of the grassroots donors. Our task now is to take this movement, which was built in opposition to Donald Trump, and not to let it wither, but to keep building this momentum and put it to work actually pursuing this positive agenda that we have to enact. So we we, have, we are taking all of this energy and momentum and goodwill and volunteerism and infrastructure. And in Georgia, where the state's gotten younger and more diverse by the day, where we've registered hundreds of thousands of voters in just a couple of years, and the movement that we're building here in Georgia is about health, jobs, and justice. And we can only deliver health, jobs, and justice by winning. And I think people feel that and know that and are ready to vote. And early voting opens Monday. On Monday, that's right. And uh, I know Joe Biden is campaigning for you next week, I believe. Have you and uh, the president-elect talked about the election in Georgia and your strategy, et cetera? I haven't yet had the chance to speak with the president-elect. I, I don't want to intrude upon what I know is a, a very busy period of preparing to govern and preparing for this transition, which, by the way, has been and continues to be disrupted by this outrageous refusal by Donald Trump to accept the clear will of the people, concede the election, and hand over power. They're trying to, still trying to throw out the legally cast ballots of voters here in Georgia. This is an attack on democracy and voting rights unlike anything I can recall, certainly in recent American history. And it's really dangerous. And for David Perdue, my opponent, to be indulging this and attacking democracy, you're trying, he's, David Perdue, imagine being a U.S. senator and you're trying to throw out votes cast by your own constituents because they're not for your political party. I mean, that's low. We deserve a lot better than this. And uh, President-elect Biden will be here on Tuesday, and this is just all about energizing turnout. People are feeling hope for the first time in four years, and what we have to do is make sure people realize that for that hope to be manifest in positive change, we got to get back out and vote again and win the Senate. Not only have has uh, sort of the diverse, the increased diversity of Georgia, not only does that reflect the so-called New South. Uh, but it's been really interesting, the political dynamics that have gone on in your state. I interviewed Brad Raffsenberger, the Secretary of State, a Republican, a Trump supporter who had to kind of stay strong and not bow to pressure and even got death threats 
about the outcome in Georgia for the presidential race. Georgia turned red for the first time, what, since 19, uh, blue for the first time since 1992. And so um, it's really been interesting to see Republicans have to resist the president's entreaties to kind of uh, mess with the the uh, outcome or the results of the election. Has that has that opened the door for maybe some more bipartisan cooperation in Georgia because you all are fighting against a so-called common enemy at this point? Well, I think that what we're going to start to see is more of this, and what I mean is that. There are going to be some voices within the Republican Party who kind of poke their heads up over the parapet as the dust settles and point out that Donald Trump just got beaten by the worst margin for an incumbent president seeking re-election since Roosevelt crushed Hoover in 1932, and that perhaps the GOP is going to have to change in order to build the kind of national coalition that it needs to win elections. I mean, remember after 2016, Democrats went through a lot of hand-wringing and introspection, and um, it's going to be worse because the GOP really needs to grapple with what's happened here. They've lost the presidency in the midst of the presidency. One of the things that I think is interesting is that my opponent, David Perdue, is talking out of both sides of his mouth on this. So like when he's on calls with establishment Republican donors, he, he, he puts blame for the fact that he's in a runoff squarely on Donald Trump. And he actually tells some of these Republican donors that uh, not only did uh, Biden win the election, he acknowledges it, but says that Biden's a better negotiator than Donald Trump is. But in public, Purdue is indulging the president's tantrum and sort of trying to pretend he actually believes Trump might have won. It's put my opponent and Kelly Leffler, the other Republican senator, in a very awkward position where they're trying to please everybody, but everyone can tell that they're being dishonest. Not only that, but Republicans like Lynn Wood, and uh, who I know from my days at NBC, uh, he represented a lot of high-profile clients, telling Republicans not to vote because the election was rigged. Is that still going on there? Because that sounds like a recipe for disaster for the GOP. I don't know. I know Lynn Lynn Wood was in in state and um, uh, saying some wild stuff uh, and spreading a lot of misinformation. And although there's something amusing about it, we have to recognize that this is an attack on democracy sanctioned by the President of the United States. This is really serious. And, And if... If there were a shred of steel in David Perdue's spine, which we know there's not because the man's too much of a coward even to come out and debate me, but if he had any courage, if he were any kind of a statesman, then he would be standing up to Donald Trump and saying, the will of the people may not be as you want it, Mr. President, but it's still the will of the people. Instead, as I said, what David Perdue is trying to do is just please everybody. And so he's talking to the diehard Trump supporters and pretending that he's covering for the president. And he's talking to the Republican donors who want to move on and blaming the fact that he's in a runoff in Georgia on the president. I know the New York Times has done some uh, recently uh, written some pieces about David Perdue, about his stock trading, about the fact that he's responsible for uh, it's uh, uh, basically for stock trades that 
or nearly a third of all Senate trades reported in the past six years. I know he was under investigation for possible insider training. Ultimately, it's important to point out prosecutors declined to bring charges. Is this resonating with people? Some of these uh, stories that have been circulating and uh, reported on uh, about David Perdue? Oh, it's definitely resonating. And even among Republican voters in Georgia, those who plan on supporting Purdue are holding their nose to do it because they know he's been blatantly enriching himself in office. I mean, Purdue's campaign slogan at this point amounts to that he was not yet criminally indicted. It's a pretty low bar. Like you said, I mean, almost a third of all Senate stock trading, one guy. I think like more stock trades than the next five senators combined. And all year long, he's been telling people he doesn't order his own stock trades, but they impaneled a federal grand jury, subpoenaed banking records, and found that he does. And it's not just that he's using his office to enrich himself. This is a really important point, Katie, in terms of how the people see David Perdue. You know, yes, he, he was buying shares and manufacturers of vaccines and medical equipment and dumping his casino shares in the early weeks of this pandemic while he was privy to classified briefings. The thing about it is he was doing all that while, while telling us this thing was no worse than the flu and blocking economic relief for ordinary people. It's like a, a cartoon villain level of corruption. Mm-hmm. Well, let, let's talk. Um... Let's talk about the fact that you're getting a lot of money. It's funny, I was just looking at some of these comments, John, and I know you're getting money from out of state. And I'm curious, you know, that was the case with Jamie Harrison, as you know. And I'm wondering if that's going to backfire at all, that people will think, you know, you're not George's candidate, but out, you know, too beholden or, or getting too much support from outsiders. I'm just curious. It doesn't worry me at all. I mean, for one, there's a lot, a lot, a lot more outside Republican super PAC money coming in than Democratic super PAC money. So look, let's just call it like it is. There's a lot of money from across the country coming in for and against the candidates on in both parties. And and that's because of the outsized national stakes of these races. Uh, and it, and I, our political system needs to be reformed so that there isn't this vast influence of super PACs. We need to ban dark money. We need to ban corporate money and corporate PACs from politics. We need to bar lobbyists from making political contributions. We need to reduce individual giving limits. I mean, one of the reasons that, for example, there is no action on climate change, why it's so hard to make healthcare more affordable, why criminal justice is so difficult is because of the power of the oil and gas lobby, the insurance lobby, and the private prison lobby. But I mean, the bottom line is that there's a lot of money coming from across the country to, you know, spend on ads in these in these four or these two Senate races. Uh, and it's coming in on both sides. So um, I'm curious, I know you call yourself a moderate Democrat. It's interesting. Whenever I do these Instagram live interviews, John, and they're political in nature, uh, people always bring out the world word socialism. I think that uh, that the Republicans were really really, I, I think, successful in some ways of branding Democrats as quote-unquote socialists. And I'm curious if, how you feel about the tension that exists between uber-progressives in the party and more moderate Democrats, and how you see managing that so the, the party isn't splintered. 
Well, first of all, I mean, if I call myself anything, I call myself a John Lewis Democrat. I call myself a civil rights Democrat. There's a different kind of Democratic candidate that emerges here in the South that reflects the values of states like Georgia and voters here in Georgia. So I don't align myself with any faction, any any movement within the party, any major figure. I speak for myself. Uh, and um, my views are my views. Um, so with that being said, in terms of the broader Democratic Party, I think it's healthy to have a big tent. I don't worry for a moment. And let me encourage, you know, uh, Democrats here in Georgia, across the country, we should not worry about the nonsense that Republican super PACs say about us. You know, it doesn't worry me at all, Katie. It's like the most garden variety, paint by numbers, conventional, predictable fear mongering. And a lot of it is just about dividing people along racial and cultural lines. You know, they lengthen my nose oh, right. in ads to remind everyone that I'm a Jew. The ads they're running against Reverend Warnock. You know, they talk about like the, the racist dog whistle. This is like a foghorn. And, and so I really don't spend any time worrying about what the GOP is saying about me on TV. I spend my time focusing on what I'm going to do for the people. Health, jobs, and justice for the people. Every single American deserves great health care, regardless of their wealth. Every single American needs economic relief right now at this moment of crisis. Every single American deserves equal justice under the law, regardless of race and regardless of class. So David Perdue and you know the folks in the GOP in DC, they can call me whatever they want. I really don't care. I'm focused on helping people and delivering for people and getting out the vote by inspiring people rather than defending myself against false attacks from the GOP. Yeah, I, I, I know that we have to wrap because you're starting a, a bus tour tomorrow. So you probably have to get some rest and you're going to be very busy. And by the way, your press person, Jason, has been a real pleasure to work with. So tell him. we. Good. Jake. I called him Jason. Jake. Sorry, Jake. I knew who you meant. I knew who you meant. <laughs> but, um, before we go, I just wanted to ask you one more question, and I hope, hopefully Jake won't get too, too upset with me. You know, the COVID relief package uh, is just, is that one of the things that frustrates you that that the, the elected officials on Capitol Hill cannot come up with a COVID relief package that is really going to help so many struggling Americans? And... I know there's a lot about corporate liability that I, you know, that that a lot of Democrats are concerned about. But when you look at what's going on on Capitol Hill, why is it so difficult to just get this piece of legislation passed? In your view, Mitch McConnell. I mean, let, let's you know, it's not just generically Congress. The House of Representatives passed a significant a major COVID relief package like seven months ago. The House acted seven months ago. It's the Senate under Mitch McConnell's control that is blocking stimulus checks, that is blocking small business relief, that is blocking aid for state and local governments, which includes our local school districts and public safety and police departments, all of whom are struggling now because tax revenues are down. So, I mean, this is not sort of just a, um, a bipartisan problem and a pox on, on both their houses. This is Mitch McConnell doing what Mitch McConnell does, which is block 
everything because all he cares about is his own power. And so if we're going to wrap, and I, I, Jake's giving you a hard time, I'd love to just keep talking. But but if we're going to wrap, I guess I just would say this, is that if we remember what McConnell tried to do to President Obama, that's exactly what he's going to try to do to Joe and Kamala. It's going to be gridlock, shutdowns, paralysis. He's going to block COVID relief. He's going to block civil rights and voting rights. He's going to block affordable health care. We can't allow that to happen when people are counting us. He's going to block a $15 minimum wage. He's going to block student debt relief. I mean, we really need to win these races because we need to enact legislation and govern and get things done. Well, maybe you'll you'll talk to me again. I wanted to ask you about myths and disinformation, how you're stopping that. Someone said they didn't want to defund the police, so couldn't support you, which I don't know if you want to respond to that because I do feel like there's a lot of misunderstanding about the whole word defund the police and that people, um, I think it needs rebranding. I've said this repeatedly during these interviews, but since someone says they can't support you because of that, do you want to clarify your position at all real quickly before you go? Well, I don't support defunding the police, and I would encourage that person to support our efforts to reform policing and criminal justice in this country. And I would encourage that person to get on board with the push for a new Civil Rights Act, which will establish national standards for the use of force, which will demilitarize local police forces, which will ensure that there is accountability where anyone's civil rights are violated, will ensure there's true accountability for police brutality and racial profiling. There's a lot we need to do to achieve criminal justice reform in this country. We need to reform our drug laws. We need to reform our prisons. But the answer is not defunding the police. The answer is embarking upon a robust program of reform so that there is true equal justice for all people in this country. All right, I'm glad you got a chance to respond to that comment because I feel like it's important for you to clarify your position and for people to do their homework. Well, John Ossoff, thanks so much for talking with us on this Saturday late afternoon. We really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we can talk again, uh, perhaps after January 5th, which happens to be my daughter's birthday. Is it really? Okay, well, um, I, I, I hope that uh, she has a great birthday. And I know that it will be a great day for Georgia and for the country because we're going to win these two races. I'm grateful to you, uh, Katie, for the opportunity to speak with you. I'm grateful for uh, all of the reporting and journalism and the superb interviews that you've conducted throughout your career, helping to inform the public about where candidates stand and what the issues of the day are. And I'm uh, grateful for the opportunity to address uh, all of your fans and followers. And I wish you good health and your family good health. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate it. And, uh, I'm just reporting a bad comment because I do not like these bad comments. So um, I'll uh, hopefully talk to you in the future and uh, give my best to your wife and tell her thanks for all the great work she does every day. I'll, I'll pass that along. And by the way, we, we've now discovered TikTok as a campaign. Are you on TikTok, Katie? I am not on TikTok, John. Uh, I, sh I should try to do it, but my I only have so much bandwidth for social media, you know? I do a lot of stuff, and uh, I don't know, I feel, I'm sort of embarrassed to get on TikTok, because I feel like it's for like 18, you know, 15-year-olds, but maybe I should try it. Well, will you do me a favor and just say hello and happy holidays to, to the TikTok family? I will. Great. Now, yeah, I was actually thinking like, you know, for the people, because they're, they're, they're going to be tuned in. 
Hey, TikTok family. Happy holidays. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy everything. Happy everything. Happy holidays, TikTok family. And Katie, thank you so much. I appreciate you. All right, John. Thanks again. Bye, everyone. If you guys like what you see, subscribe.